Welcome to Tyranny Today, a weekly podcast devoted to the ways in which despotisms around the world threaten our way of life and maybe one day our life, period. Pity Armenia's lonely suffering. The third Azeri-Armenian war seems to have tipped the balance decidedly in Baku's favor now. Baku, that affluent, oily jewel of uh, the Soviet Union's southern reaches, and those like me, who grew up under the Soviet boot, still remember Muslim Magomayev, one of the USSR's biggest pop stars and his immortal schlager, Moy Gorod Baku, in other words, my town, Baku. By the way, it's on YouTube with some priceless footage of Azerbaijan's capital back in the 1970s, so check it out. I know Armenia's capital, Yerevan, pretty well. In my childhood, I had an Armenian friend who lived in our apartment block. I remember his mother's beautifully thick black hair and her equally thick and equally intriguing velvety accent. When I was about 10, during the summer holiday, they suddenly vanished from my life. They returned to Armenia. No Facebook, no phone number, not even an address for censorship to enjoy reading our letters. Nada. But some 40 years later, I tracked down that childhood buddy online, and when an opportunity arose, I traveled to Armenia for a project. Truth be told, the project was of little lasting value. It was a gold mine in a mountain bear country. But the reunion of his mother was a memorable moment. It was like seeing an old aunt, a long-lost aunt, whose um, exotic cuisine I still vaguely remembered from my childhood. On a day off in Yerevan, I gave the address to the taxi driver, who dropped me off at a drab neighborhood populated with um, 1960s Khrushchevka. Uh, these are those dull matchbox-style housing estates that were the monument to the Soviet Union's ultimately failed efforts to solve the country's lack of apartments. Penurie de logement, as we used to call it in Western Switzerland. I walked between the rundown buildings looking for the right door number. The space between the buildings was filled with box-like garages and lush, tall poplar trees, those Armenian silver-leaf poplars, which are a bit wider than the Chinese or Polish cousins that I had been familiar with. Laundry lines were stretching between some balconies, clearly demarcating neighborly alliances and warm and warm-hearted Armenia. The reunion was nothing like I expected. My Armenian aunt threw a party and invited a group of intellectuals, former university professors, all educated in Soviet institutes, and all of them members of the first post-Soviet government in Yerevan, way back in the early 90s. Not unlike independent India, independent United States, or post-Soviet Czechoslovakia, and scores of other polities reuniting or reinventing freedom, that freshly free Armenia back in the early 90s was full of well-meaning idealists. Uh, there were no professional politicians there because simply under the USSR there were no politicians at all other than the party leaders and the more ambitious members of the nomenclatura. What struck me during that conversation that challenged my subpar spoken Russian, admittedly, was my host's infatuation with Vladimir Putin's most recent adventure in Syria. Although my host and her guests had long exited the country's politics, they exhibited a longing for strong leadership and Putin's might provided what they craved for most, that is, protection from the Turks. Now, who are the Turks? Well, 
For Armenians, Turks are, of course, first and foremost, the Turks of Turkey proper, such as Enver Pasha, one of the architects of the Armenian genocide, and a man whose image some Azeri soldiers are apparently carrying on their uniforms today, if anything, to sow panic among the uh, Armenian populace. But that's precisely why Armenians refer to Azeris as Turks. It was not a coincidence that I was there for the 100th anniversary of the genocide. The conversations I held struck me as both aggrandizing and fearful, proud and delusional. According to my hopeful interlocutors, the great Russia should lead all the Slavs again and help Armenia shake off the Turkic threat once and for all. The memories of the proud first Azeri-Armenian war were still vivid. That war, waged between 1988 and 94, is one of the modern Armenia's foundational myths. It was won by Armenia and secured Armenian presence in Nagorno-Karabakh, an exclave that finally fell into Azeri hands two weeks ago. My aunt's family was not from Karabakh, but descended from an old noble clan from Kapan, a region in southern Armenia proper, known for its copper and gold mines. Among various family memorabilia, she showed me some metal artifacts that, to my unprepared eye, looked like candlesticks. She told me that Armenian soldiers, before going to the front line to fight the Azeris, would pass through her apartment to hold those ancient metallic artifacts and meditate on them to absorb the force and then go fight for their land. Armenia won that war, but over the following 30 years, the country's reliance on Russia for security its isolation from the mainstream European politics, as well as Azerbaijan's demographic growth and wealth accumulated from fossil fuel exports, changed the balance of power between those two countries. To the very end, Yerevan hoped for Russia to do what my host viewed as the country's only hope, that is, stop the squeezing vice from Ankara and Baku. To an outside observer, Russia had betrayed Armenians too many times in history to trust its dubious role as a protector. The myth had a lot to do with um, Armenia being the only sizable Christian presence left in the Middle East and West Asia, even though the two churches are doctrinally separated by the fact that Armenians, unlike Russian Orthodox or Ukrainian Orthodox, or, or Roman Catholics for that matter, or Protestants, Ro Armenian Christians are monophysites. Uh, that is, they believe that Christ had only one nature, that is, divine nature, while those other churches believe that Christ has two natures, human and divine, right? And this doctrinal division goes back to the Council of uh, Chalcedon in 451 AD. But much later, that is between the 16th and 18th century, Armenia was the theater of many Turco-Persian wars, and the lands of Armenians were often divided between those two powers. Eastern Armenia stayed under the Persian rule until the Russian Tsarist army crossed into the Persian territory in the early 19th century. Interestingly enough, around the same time that Russia waged the war against Napoleon. So this is when the so-called Second Front was opened for the first time in Russian strategic thinking, and which now was all but abandoned by Russia as Moscow needs to concentrate its efforts on the Western Front in Ukraine. But precisely since the early 19th century, it became a Russian obsession to protect its southern underbelly by controlling the territory south of the natural Caucasus border. Persia lost control of eastern Armenia in 1828, and this territory remained under Russian or later Soviet control until 1991. Western Armenia, on the other hand, was under the Ottoman rule until the genocide of uh, 1915. 
Six years later, Lenin's Soviet regime and Ataturk's uh, Turkish diplomats signed two treaties that divided historical Armenia between the USSR and Turkey. The USSR essentially gave to Turkey the Armenian territories that Tsarist Russia had seized in the second half of the 19th century. The two treaties, the Treaty of Moscow and the Treaty of Kars in particular, are the symbols of Russia's unreliability as Armenia's alleged protector. My Armenian friends told me that living under the Soviet rule in Yerevan was not all that bad, uh, as they said, as if inside the cloak of a priest. But Soviets knew how to exploit Armenia's human capital. One in five Armenians served in the Second World War in the Soviet army, even though the hostilities never actually reached Armenia proper, other than as the conduit of American and British military help that transited from Iran. Germans hoped to reach the oil fleets of Baku, but never managed to cross into the southern Caucasus. Armenians even footed several marshals uh, to the Soviet army and an admiral. After the war, Armenians contributed the third, the third significant ethnic component to the Soviet science and technology, after Russians and Ukrainians. And when Chernobyl blew out, it was the Armenian scientists who were sent there to risk their life for the glory of the USSR, what was left from that. And between, between 1986 and 91, more than 3,000 Armenians participated in the liquidation operations at the Chernobyl power plant. The thing is, that Russian duplicity and exploitation of Armenians' Turkish fears was not entirely forgotten in Armenia, but it had to be often explained away somehow. When in Yerevan I told my aunt that I disagreed with her guess and I don't think Putin is a reliable ally, or rather I think he's a thug, a bully, and a traitor who only fears other thugs, respects other bullies, and hates other traitors. She then took me to the side, nodded and murmured, Yes, I think Putin is a Tatar. Well, so was Enver Pasha's mother, I thought. And now it's all over. My aunt passed away during the Second Azeri-Armenian War, lost by Armenia two years ago when Azerbaijan smothered the forces of Nagorno-Karabakh with its novel weapon, Turkish Bayraktar drones, which you may remember from the earlier stages of the war in Ukraine. Russia, which found Azeri arms market just too juicy to resist, took no sides in that conflict two years ago, and Putin waited long enough to send peacekeepers and thus strengthen his military presence in the region. But then he fell out with Pashinin, Armenia's president, who had been trying to hedge, reaching out to the West to France and the U.S. in particular, where the Armenian diaspora is the strongest. Now, two years on, and now columns of Armenian refugees are fleeing again. Australian lawmakers have urged help for what is, in historical terms, yet another displacement of a Christian minority by a Muslim majority, just like in Pakistan, Nigeria, Syria, or Iraq. And uh, with a history at least as long as the last two, Syria or Iraq. So the West carries some responsibility here to make sure that at least the vestiges of that historic presence are not destroyed by the Azeri invaders the way the Western Armenia was flattened 108 years ago. Last week I mentioned that these developments, and especially the idea of connecting Azerbaijan across southern Armenia proper to the Azeri exclave of Nakhichevan, might be torpedoed by Iran, Armenia's last remaining regional ally. But it appears now that Iran has agreed in principle to an extraterritorial connection between Azerbaijan and its exclave in Nakhichevan, somehow in the spirit of the Treaty of Zuhab from 1639, which ended 150 years of wars between the Ottomans and the Safavids. Tehran has decided not to rock the boat. Is there a risk 
that an open support for Armenia would backfire domestically in Iran? Twice as many ethnic Azeris live in Iran than in the Republic of Azerbaijan, at 20 million. That's the largest ethnic minority in Iran. By contrast, at most half a million ethnic Armenians inhabit Iran's cities, in particular Isfahan's Jolfa neighborhood with its impressive Vank Cathedral. Armenian Christians are also the only people in Iran who are legally permitted to produce wine for their religious ceremony. And it is in Isfahan that I had the chance to illegally taste that product, and not for a religious mass at all. After spiriting it away from the local Christians, I sipped it in a classically clandestine way from a bottle of Pepsi-Cola, just in case. All right, we're moving now from the tragic lands of West Asia further south and east, and often equally tragic. Uh, I'm recording this as usual in New York City, a city that got badly flooded last week after what I could only describe as a monsoon season, several days of incessant rain, plus one that does not portend for a particularly good harvest here unless uh, someone cares for profusely watered plants on a penthouse terrace, on high-rise observation decks, and maybe on some balconies. We do not often travel to monsoon regions during the monsoon season. Rather, in the countries bordering on the Indian Ocean, we typically avoid uh, those intense periods when the parched land is eagerly gaping, thirsty, for the first heavy droplets that are about to fall from the deep gray masses of humidity that revisit the sky after months of baking. Uh, these are dark leaden cloud masses, as portrayed by Hindu artists, in the monsoon color of the darkish-blackish Krishna, as opposed to the more typical blue of the local iconography. But it's not about India that I'm planning to talk now. In fact, uh, yes, it was a province of British India, but then became an independently administered colony, and this country is Burma, or, as we are told, Myanmar. Oh, really, or is it? From Upper Volta to Burkina Faso, from Dahomey to Benin, from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe, from Ceylon to Sri Lanka, from Burma to Myanmar, from Witwatersrand to Gauteng, from Madras to Chennai, and from Turkey now to Turkey, and maybe from India to Bharat, our tongues are ordered to twist and twirl, but I don't care much about being PC, so let it be, at least for today, Burma. It's a country I visited during the dry season for the reasons I just mentioned, and I went there equipped with socks that were reinforced with metallic mesh, uh, just in case I encounter a Russell's viper or a krait, krait, that bizarre striped snake of nearly a triangular rather than cylindrical cross-section that the locals know how to prepare for a feast, but it's really who eats whom. That was my concern, given that mortality from a krait's bite is um, 80%. Burma has resurfaced recently in the news for two potentially interrelated reasons, and when it does, it's either sadly harrowing or alarming, and often both. In my day job, I often wonder what we can do in the collective ideological West to become less economically insecure when the current strategic rivalry transmutes into an open conflict. After 30 years of Western deindustrialization, this is not an easy task. The challenge is bad enough in advanced manufacturing or even in shipyards where labor is tight, skills are rare, and turnover way too high to build up human capital for sustained development of those uh, key industrial sectors. But it's even worse further upstream in mining. Over the years, we have lost several mining sectors and pushed this dirty industry out to the fringes of our collective periphery. It's somewhere out there, right? In Patagonia, West Africa, Northern Canada, just not here. Nimby, Nymphy, Nimsi, 
not in my backyard, front yard, or side yard. That is, for example, the case of uranium industry, which we almost ceased to mine in the United States, and which will painfully reopen with inevitable delays, but only to face insufficient capacity further downstream first to convert the mined ore into uranium hexafluoride, the gaseous form that uh, is enriched into nuclear fuel. But alas, 36% of global conversion is now controlled by Russia, not our friend. And 45% of global uranium enrichment is controlled also by Russia. Asleep at the wheel, were we not? Other sectors suffer from the same stress. Cobalt mining, for example, has vanished, even though the United States has deposits, not least in Idaho. This particular asset is lying waste because the prices of cobalt have fallen below $20 per pound, and the Australian-listed company that was planning to develop the mine simply can't take it to production without a major support from the U.S. federal government. And it is a strategic mineral for high-performance batteries, the batteries that contain nickel, cobalt, and manganese, the kind that is used in long-range electric vehicles, but also used in a variety of military applications. And then there are other rare earths, a list of 18 minerals, four of which are indispensable for the production of permanent magnets, such as those that are applied in the direct drives of power-generating windmills, especially the large ones that are planted offshore. The U.S. used to mine a lot of rare earths, but currently the industry is almost fully controlled by China, both in terms of mining as well as processing. And that means refining and separation of the various minerals, a process that is extremely complex and may involve over 400 steps in the plant's flow sheet. But, as is in the case in uranium or cobalt, China does not really mine enough of this stuff domestically. China mines uranium in Namibia and cobalt in the Congo. And the rare earths? Well, exactly, in snake-infested Burma. More precisely, in the north of that country, where the deposits are located, that is Penghua region of Burma's Kachin state. This year, the prices of most commodities, with the possible exception of crude oil and uranium, have plunged because, and it's because in quotation marks, the commodity-intensive Chinese economy has plunged into something of a coma. Uh, that is true. China has been a credit-driven economy and for too long. And the existing debt could only be serviced with new borrowing rather than with cash flows from return on previously invested capital. On the real economy side, this was driven by two types of activity. One was real estate speculation, and the other one consisted in investing into low return projects funded by opaque borrowing structures in the provinces. And for way too long, the system encouraged developers leveraging and consumers' speculation. This led to the economy in which the source of demand was not consumption, but over-reliance on credit-fueled investment. And on the supply side, the system was characterized by over-reliance on capital accumulation rather than innovation. So now that the cogs of this machine have accumulated too much sand to continue spinning, the commodity markets are in panic, especially the industrial commodities, metals in particular, whose prices have been falling this year. Except that the prices of rare herbs suddenly picked up in August. So when the demand is depressed and the prices rise, something must be happening on the supply side. Since mid-August, the prices of neodymium, which is a bellwether for the moves of those 18 different rare earth oxides, those prices have risen by 15% to the levels last seen in April. And the reason, well, you guessed, that's Burma. In the first half of the year, Myanmar accounted for 38% of rare earths imports into China. And last year, Burma was the fourth largest global source of rare earths. The mines in Burma are controlled by combined interests of the ruling military junta and Chinese companies from just across the border to the north. It now turns out that 
the mines in Pangwa region, in Myanmar's Kachin state, have been shut down for inspection since September 4, with no clear reopening date provided. Um, the inspections were initially expected to last up to 10 days, but you know, we're way past the date. We have to step back a bit to understand what is behind these inspections. Um, Burma, just like Iran, is a multi-ethnic state, the factoid that we sometimes tend to forget. So when the local dictatorship brutally cracks down on the urban population and arrests its dissidents and opposition leaders, often such a conflict spills over into the periphery where old ethnic grievances resurface. That was the case in Iran last year, and that is the case in Burma since uh, 2021. The military situation in Kachin state has been unstable for several months. Last February, Kachin Independent Army, uh, KIA, launched an offensive against the military junta. In response, the regime imposed a state of emergency. As of late August, fighting in Kachin state displaced over a thousand villagers, and human rights organizations reported that the military junta arrested scores of civilians, including children, to use them as human shields in the battles. I'm not going to delve into these horror stories, which are unconfirmed but are partly documented by human rights activists, and information about it can be found online. Although Myanmar is on G7's Financial Action Task Force blacklist, several rare earth's mines in Kachin State are invested by Chinese interests and continued production until those inspections force them to discontinue the operations. Now that's all horrifying, but strategically not entirely new per se. But here's a surprise. Remember the Eastern Economic Forum that Putin hosted in Vladivostok, and on which occasion he met with uh, one and only Kim Jong-un? Well, apparently around that time, Xi Jinping was just next door in Harbin, a skiing center of the neighboring Heilongjiang province, the province named after the Black Dragon River that we in the West called Amur River. Well, with three bad men in all in one region, wasn't there something missing to the party? Of course there was, and his name was Min Onghlan. Burma's military ruler. It was his third visit to Russia since the military took power in Myanmar, and this time he landed a 101 with Putin. It was not purely coincidental because Sergei Lavrov, Russia's uh, foreign minister, had visited Burma's capital in August. Russia's outreach to China for business, to Iran for drones, to North Korea for ammunition, or to Cuba for mercenaries could not miss out on one potentially reliable outcast of the international community that is Burma's military junta. There are, in fact, many similarities between Russia and Burma. This is a regime that disbanded the opposition party, National League for Democracy, which won the elections in 2020. The party's iconic leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, has been thrown into jail for a combined 20 years. The only difference from Navalny's case in Russia is that she wasn't poisoned, flown to Germany for treatment, and returned home to uh, go back to jail for opposing the regime. In the mid-90s, when I visited Yangon, Aung San Suu Kyi was under house arrest. Back then, she appeared regularly climbing onto the fence of her property to speak to her supporters. I wanted to go and see it. In the hotel where I stayed, the employees were just too scared to give me directions, so I worked out the route uh, from my guidebook and presented a hand-drawn map to the taxi driver. Uh, he too pretended that he didn't know where he was taking me, but somehow we managed to get there. And the street along Onsan Suchi's house was full of people, mostly young Burmese. They were all sitting on the asphalt surface, so no traffic could pass there. Although I understood no word of Burmese, the emotional intensity of that moment embraced me from the very first second I was there. The air was dry and carrying, you know, this waft of that flowery aroma that your nostrils can capture in many parts of Southern Asia. 
and there was a whiff of fresh effervescence, really buoyed by this collective feeling of empowerment. Yes, the people there were subjugated by the military, but still sufficiently bold and optimistic to carve out this, this, this small section of freedom right there, where we were sitting in the middle of that street. Barely seven years since Tiananmen Massacre, there was, this was one of the formative experiences for me. Alas, 27 years later, the situation in Burma has only gotten worse. Much worse, in fact. And what we are hearing from the country's capital is that the junta is now busy conducting purges in Naypyidaw, the capital, the new capital. People are demoted, often disappear, and judging by the gleeful reaction of the very present Russian officials in Burma, uh, this is not a good sign, and this seems to be uh, confirmed by the very harsh reaction from the U.S. State Department. The Burmese regime has learned how to play on China's sense of maritime insecurity. So not only with their earth exports, but also because the country can offer to Beijing an overland route to Yunnan, and thus bypass Malacca Strait in case of Taiwan contingency and a blockade by the U.S. 7th Fleet. So China's game is pretty transparent. But what about Russia? Recently, Tom Andrews, the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Burma, told the UN Human Rights Council that Russia was one of the three states to have supplied weapons to Myanmar since the coup d'etat, despite the use of these weapons against civilians. So what are these countries? Of course, China, and then Russia, and then guess who? Russia's best friends in Europe, that is Serbia. Now, however, Russia's experts of weaponry are dwindling due to the pressing needs on the Ukrainian grinder. So what exactly was Lavrov up to in Burma? Is this another effort to extend the coalition of the willing, backed by China's unwavering economic and diplomatic support from Moscow, and a military bridge that now connects Russia with Belarus, Syria, Iran, and North Korea? Now, who said that dictators don't have allies? I have a hunch on why Moscow is reaching out to Burma. Last year, in 2022, Russian army used some 11 to 12 million shells in Ukraine. So far this year, they've used 7 million shells. The problem is that even having switched its economy to war footing, the annual production is only 2.5 million shells. Let us assume that Iran provides another million, that's 3.5 million available, less than half of what Russia is using this year from the stockpiles. So either the Russian military doctrine has to switch from dumb mess to smart targeting, or more help is needed. And of course, more help may be coming from North Korea now, but Burma too has its stockpiles because, well, every dictatorship has. Frankly, I fear less Burmese ammo than Russia's advances in domestic drone production, such as Landsat 3, and what they are capable of achieving over long distances. Now, we do not know yet how the Russian efforts will play out in Burma, and I'm not sure how good the Western intelligence network is in the country. Robert Kaplan, in his Monsoon, wrote that in the past we could leverage the Christian missionary network in South Asia and East Asia. Uh, this may be one reason why Xi Jinping has been so dedicated in his anti-Christian crusade, using COVID restrictions to crack down on church gatherings and imposing Xi Jinping idolatry instead. Erdogan simply covers the mosaics of Virgin Mary and Hagia Sophia with white canvas. Xi Jinping paints his own image over the cross. But how about merging these two images? Maybe he should have thought about this. For now, however, the immediate Russian concerns uh, lie elsewhere. Putin has just announced that he would mobilize additional 130,000 men this fall, raising the age limit from 27 to 30. One of my pro-Putin's friends lamented uh, the hard age cutoff because he's unlikely to qualify. 
I told him that uh, he should wait for the sixth mobilization, AD 2027. By then, the age limit to join the Ukrainian grinder will probably be 61. So he still stands a chance to join Russia's patriotic effort. That's all for today. Have a great week.